0: Well we're going to be in First Samuel fifteen this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles there as we continue in our study through the book of First Samuel, we've been out of this book for a couple of weeks, um, and so it's nice to return to it and to our series. Title of our message this morning is Vote for Saul. Vote for Saul. As many of you are still making your way to 1 Samuel 15, let's do a word association this morning. Let's say, let me throw a word, you know word association, right? You throw a word out and then you just sort of, first thing that comes to your mind, you know, you're going to share. So this is a participation thing. Word association, here we go. Politician. Oh man, you were all quick. I heard crook. I heard liar. Uh, What? Coward. 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 Power, oh, power. Okay. Some of them are cowards. What's greed? What's that? <laughs> Seared conscience. Criminal. It's funny. I, I saw. I saw a political sticker on a on a car this week. I thought it was hysterical. It, it said, um, "Hillary for prison, 2016." <laughs> Yeah, you know, politics, man, it's crazy, right? Uh, the story is told about a man who was running for political office, and uh, this guy had a lot of skeletons in his closet, so he hired a PR firm to to get involved, uh, and probably the biggest skeleton that he had in his closet was that his uh, grandfather was a crook, and so uh, he he's, he's like, hey, you know, why don't you investigate his history, kind of dig up everything you can on my grandfather and see what you can do to bury it. And so what they came to find out was that the grandfather was really a worse crook than they really even imagined. Um, The only existing photograph that they had of this guy showed him standing on the gallows about to be hanged for his crime. Uh, And on the back of the picture was this inscription. It said, Gunther Gore, horse thief sent to Tennessee prison 1883, escaped 1887, robbed the Tennessee Flyer six times, caught by Pinkerton detectives, convicted and hanged 1889. And so undaunted, this PR firm went right to work and they were drafting his bio and they got this picture and they cropped it, they just zoomed it up and they blew up the head and cropped out, you know, the gallows and everything else and so it was just a headshot of the guy and then they drafted this bio to go with the headshot and the the headshot read this, Gunther Gore was uh, an entrepreneur in early Tennessee history. His business empire grew to include acquisition of valuable equestrian assets and intimate dealings with the Tennessee Railroad Company. Beginning in 1883, he devoted several years of his life to service at a government facility, finally taking leave to resume his business enterprise with the railroad. In 1887, he was a key player in a vital investigation run by the renowned Pinkerton Detective Agency. In 1889, Gunther regrettably died during an important civic function held in his honor when the platform on which he was standing suddenly collapsed. (laughs) Image is one thing, but the truth is quite often something different, right? Right? The big idea of the message today here in 1 Samuel 15 is that whereas man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. Now, we're just picking this up after a couple of weeks. I realize some of you are new here, so let me catch you up to speed where we're at. The events in this entire book of 1 Samuel, they take place over a hundred and maybe ten year period of time during a transition uh, in Israel's history. Uh, And the transition is transitioning from the time of the judges to the time of the kings and the prophets. And um, this is a time when everybody, the Bible says, according to the book of Judges, was doing what was right in their own eyes. Uh, This includes the religious leaders in general, and it includes Israel's first king, Saul in particular. Uh, Here in chapter 15, the last straw for Saul, because he's already... He's got a couple of strikes against him already where God's concerned. The last straw for Saul is that he rejected the word of God. Uh, God told him to utterly destroy the Amalekites, and, uh, and Saul knew what his marching orders were, but rather than utterly destroy the Amalekites, uh, he and the people decided that they were uh, not going to destroy them. Not going to, he, God said, destroy them and destroy all their stuff. They're wicked, they're vile, they're evil. And we went through all that to explain why God would give such a command, and um, and so rather than do that, they they kept some of the they kept King Agag alive. They kept some of the the stuff that they considered good stuff uh, for themselves, completely contrary to what the Word of the Lord had said to them. They were in complete disobedience, um, and so as a consequence, we left off with God rejecting Saul as king of israel here 's the the final thing we read last week verse twenty three uh, second part of it. God says through the prophet Samuel, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you, Saul, from being king and uh, what we have been doing is we 've been looking at several mistakes that Saul made that that led to Uh, his downfall, that led to his his failure. And it's very instructive because as we see the mistakes that Saul made, we see mistakes that that we consequently can make as well. And so hopefully... You know, there's no teacher like the burnt finger, uh, and preferably we learn from somebody else's burnt finger uh, rather than our own. And so there's things we can learn from Saul's failures, hopefully, so that we uh, don't uh, repeat that. It's been said that history is, those who who fail to learn history are destined to repeat it. And so we can learn from Saul's mistakes. First thing we learned uh, about a mistake that Saul made that led to his failure, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, was that Saul boasted of things that were not true. You see in verse 13 that when Samuel shows up, Saul's greeting to him is to say, hey, praise the Lord, I I did everything God commanded me to do. And he says that while the sheep and the goat are making noise in the background and, you know, his sin is just so glaringly obvious. No, you didn't. You kept all the best of the stuff for yourself. You didn't kill King Agag. And yet Saul's attitude is, hey, praise the Lord, I, I did everything that the Lord commanded me to do. And in doing that, you know, what Saul reveals is that he's not so very different from a lot of people that call themselves Christians today. Because there are a lot of Christians today who basically have the attitude that say, Oh, you know, praise the Lord, I'm a Christian, I, I I love the Lord, I serve the Lord, I follow the Lord, I'm in fellowship with the Lord. And then you take a closer look at their life and it's like, in, no, really, you, you live in habitual sin." You know, you say that you follow the Lord, but but habitually, you know, you're, you're committing sexual immorality, you're, you know, you're involved in sexual sin with, with you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or you're, you know, you, you've got, you know, substance issues, you're going out getting drunk all the time, it's just a regular part of your practice, it's like, yeah, I go out and I, you know, drink with the guys, you know, whatever, and it's like, ah, I'm just getting buzzed. You know, there was an ad campaign recently, it said, hey, buzzed driving is drunk drunk driving, you know, and God might have the same kind of campaign where he'd say, hey, buzzed Christianity is drunken Christianity, which is not Christianity at all, you know. And so there's a lot of people that sort of claim to have the name of Christ, but if you look at their life, it really doesn't match up with their claims, and that's not to say that we don't have sin and that we don't fall into sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven, but it's not a license to wink at sin and sort of sweep, you know, all of the commandments of God under the rug and then live any way we want. There ought to be a, a fundamental change in our character. And what happens is that a lot of people are like Saul, whereas, you know, it, 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 they boast of things that aren't true. Hey, I'm a Christian but I live like hell, you know? And, 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 and it should be concerning. It's a frightening way to live. Why? Because listen to what Jesus said. Now, this is Jesus Christ speaking. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name or cast out demons in your name? done many wonders in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So one of Saul's mistakes was that he boasted of things that were not true. And so for us, we need to take a walk with that. Am I making a boast that I'm in Christ and really, I need to take a closer look at the way I'm living. And maybe I need to repent and and really, truly surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, if the shoe fits. Second lesson we learned from Saul is that Saul blamed others for his failures, He blamed others for his failures. You know, Samuel pressed him. He's like, no, 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 no. You you did not obey the Lord. And so finally, reluctantly, Saul's like, oh, yeah, you're right. But you know what? The people took the stuff. I was was afraid of them. It's their fault. It's been said that excuses are the nails used to build a house of failure. And there's lots of excuses that Christians can throw out there. You know, a guy might say, you know, it's my wife's fault that I'm looking at pornography because, you know what, she's always got a headache, and, uh, you know, she's, she's just got some, some excuse or another, you know, and so it's, it's her fault. Yeah, it, it doesn't fly. Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her, in, her heart, in your heart. And he didn't say, unless, of course, your wife's got a headache. In which case, you know, it's cool. All bets are off. Knock yourself out. And Jesus didn't say that. But people will make those kind of excuses. Or they'll make the excuse, hey, you know what, um... It's my husband's fault that I don't submit to him because, uh, you know, he makes bad decisions. So if he'd make good decisions, I'd submit to him, which therein that statement basically says if my husband made the decisions that I wanted to make, then, then I'd submit to it, which really isn't submission at all. It's doing what you want to do. And, and so, and, and that's not what the Bible says. The wife, the, the husband says the wife is to submit to the husband is under the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the of the church. Now, before you freak out about that, by the way, I mean, I throw this out, and, and, and women will lose their mind over, over, you know, a statement like that, and I just need to qualify and say, look, if you want to know where we stand on this position, it's ever so much more time than I've got this morning. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's two full Sunday morning services. Go to our Ephesians series, listen to you know, my teaching in Ephesians 5. I talk about, all about submission, and what it is, and what it isn't, and what it looks like, and what biblical submission, obedience to the Lord actually looks like. For the wife, I look at uh, husbands loving the wife as Christ loved the church and what biblically that looks like and so on. And so you can go to that section and, and, and check it out. But be that as it may, a lot of times people will make excuses. Ah, you know what? I would submit if, if my husband didn't make bad decisions. Well, Jesus didn't say that. Uh, people will say, you know what? I don't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. Well, you know, one more is not going to make any difference. Come on to church. Everybody is a hypocrite on some level, you know. And, and so, you know, again, whatever it is, is that people make uh, excuses. And, uh, and so Saul, he, he, he boasted things were not true. He blamed others for his failures. And, and the third lesson that we can learn from, from Saul's failure, thirdly, Saul borrowed the reputation of others. Saul borrowed the reputation of others. This is where we left off, and we'll pick it up in verse 24. As we make this point, it says, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, and your words, because I feared the people, and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin, and return with me. And so you basically get an excuse and a, hey, let's sweep it under the rug kind of thing, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. And has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. And also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. And that phrase, "the strength of Israel," very interesting. Only time this is used in Scripture. And uh, and basically, you know, the, the, what 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 Samuel is conveying here to Saul is, hey, let's just get one thing straight. There's, there's one who's the strength of Israel, and it's the Lord God Almighty. And Saul, it's not you. You are definitely not the strength of Israel. Because you say one thing and you do another. But the Lord isn't that way. He says the strength of the Lord will not lie nor relent. He doesn't say one thing and do another. No, he told you what's up and what you're supposed to do. And you've, you've, you've been disobedient. And now he says, I'm all done with you. Um, and uh, he's not a man that he should relent. He's not going to change his mind. He told you what the consequences were. Verse 30, Then he, that's Saul, said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please. And is that not, gee whiz, you could circle that and write America right next to that. Is that not the attitude? Yeah, I've sinned, honor me. Honor me. You know? I mean, I can't even, you know, it just sounds ridiculous to, to be within the same sentence, not even a pause. I've sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. There's a big tell. Not the Lord my God, it's the Lord your God. And so, verse 31, Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Now, don't confuse this with Samuel acquiescing to Saul. Don't confuse this with Samuel going, okay, yeah, I'll go ahead and I'll go with you. That's, that's not what's going on here. It says, verse 32, then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. And so Agag came to him cautiously. That word cautiously, it means delicately. And the idea is that Agag, when he's with Saul, was like, whew, Got away with that one, and now Samuel shows up, Mr. Righteous, and now Agag, delicately coming into his presence, is like, whoa, hey, hey, we're cool, man, we're cool. And so here's what he says. Um, He comes to him cautiously, delicately, and Agag said to Samuel, surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, hey, hey, let's put all this death stuff behind us. We're cool, man, we're buddies, we're bros. Uh, And Samuel, uh, verse 33, said, as your sword has made women childless, So shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Five-year-old boys love this section of scripture. He hacked him in pieces. You're like, dude, angry much? That's pretty extreme. Yeah, and, and, and here's what's going on. And this is why Samuel ultimately went with Saul. Saul wants Samuel to come with him because Saul's politicking for a job. We'll get into that in a minute. Saul's all about, hey, Samuel's got righteousness, I don't, and so this is kissing babies and you know, going and appearing with you know, famous, you know, successful athletes or somebody that's done, some, some military guy that's had some great feat of accomplishment, politicians love to be seen with them. Hey, I'm with him, I'm a good guy kind of thing, and this is what Saul's all about, and Samuel's like, no, nah, I'm not having a part of that, but why does he go? Because what he's doing is, he says, look, I'm not going to go and and build you up to all your people so that, so that they'll continue following you, a guy who has disobeyed God and who God has rejected. That's, I'm, not, I'm not going to prop you up, but I will go to show them what you should have done in the first place. I will go to execute judgment as God told you to do. I'll go mop up after you and send the example to everybody. Hey, this is what true obedience looks like. And that's, that's uh, what he's doing there. Uh, Verse 34, then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel went no more to see Saul, because God had rejected him, until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We've dealt with that, it's not that God had regret, it's it's an, an anthropomorphism where we understand God's heart by putting a human term to it. It, it, God knew that Saul was going to reject him. He knew that he was going to have to go select another man to be the king of Israel before he ever anointed Saul. But just because he knew that didn't mean that his heart wasn't broken because of Saul's disobedience. And that is what that section means right there. Now, I want you to notice the progression uh, that, that's taken place here. And the idea here, and we're working under this this third and final lesson that we've learned here in chapter 15 of Saul's mistakes, the mistakes that he made so that we hopefully can avoid them. And this third and final point is that Saul borrowed the reputation of others. Now under that heading and with that in mind, notice the progression that takes place here. In verses 24 and 25, Saul says, I have sinned, but it's the people's fault, so pardon me and appear with me. Basically, hey, come politicking with me. Vote for Saul. Re-elect Saul. And uh, verse 30, he says again, I have sinned, but hey, sweep it under the rug, honor me before the people. Let me ask you this question, noticing this progression. Do do you get the sense that Saul is convicted of his sin and that he's focused on confession and repentance? Or is it more the case that Saul is concerned with the consequences of his sin and keeping his job? It's the latter, isn't it? Saul is not behaving like a man who's, who's convicted and wants to confess and repent. That's not what matters to him. What matters to him is keeping his job. See, the, what we need to understand is that Saul was the people's choice, right? Saul, he's the, the king of the people's choice award. The original people's choice award went to Saul. In chapter 9, the people picked him. And why did they pick him as king? Because of his image. Tells us in scripture, he, that he, he stood head and shoulders above the rest, taller than anybody else, and that he was the most handsome man in Israel. And so the people were, they're like, we need a king, and oh, look, there's, there's, you know, Ken and Barbie, there's the Ken type right there. He's the guy from central casting, he, he's the one that we want to be, you know, our king. And so they chose him entirely for image. And so what happens here is because for Saul, it's all about image, and it's only always been about image. It's all That's all that matters to him. And so for Saul, because it's only about image, he needs Samuel, who possesses his own image, to, to go with him so that he can, you know, now, because he lacks this image, he can have this image with Samuel. Come with me and, and you know, let everybody see, you know, how awesome I am. My son Scotty, when, um, when he was a kid, he, w- he was a child actor, and he was on 7th Heaven for several seasons. And um, when he was on the show, uh, he was, we, we tried to put him in, into school, uh, public school, because, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't have a public school experience. He was always on the set all the time. He had a private teacher on the set, and it was a great education, but we wanted him to enjoy a school experience. So we kind of thought, hey, maybe with the production schedule, we can figure it out. So we put him in school. And, uh, and so his, his, his teacher and his classmates are, you know, very, you know, interested in what he did. And everybody was watching Seventh Heaven, so they all wanted to know about what life was like on the set. So his teacher said, Hey, I'll tell you what, you got this assignment. And you could customize this assignment that's due by, you know, why don't you take some pictures on the set? And, and just, you know, you can write about a, a little report on what it's like to, to work on the set. And, uh, and so that would satisfy all of their curiosity and also satisfy his, his homework assignment. And Scott's like, okay, well, we're like, it's kind of sketchy when you take pictures on the set. So we go to the producers and we're like, hey, he's got a, a homework assignment from his, from his class. They want him to take some pictures, write a report about what it's like to work on the set. And uh, is that cool? Can he do that? And they go, yeah, he can take pictures on the set. Just don't break the fourth wall. And we're like well, we're not even going to break the third wall. That's fine, no problem. What's the fourth wall? You know, we don't know what they're talking about. What does not break the fourth wall? And, uh, and they said, well, the you know, when, when you have a set, basically your set is constructed with three walls. And the fourth wall is where all the camera and the lighting and the grips guys are and all the sound technicians and everybody at the fourth wall it looks like a construction zone. You know, everybody's dressed up, you know, with tool belts and the whole bit. And so they don't want any pictures of the fourth wall. Why? Because they want to maintain the image. See, what they want is for everybody. They know that everybody knows that it's a film set. They know that everybody knows that it's not real. The Camdens aren't a real family, you know? Everybody knows that, but they don't want them reminded of that. So they say, don't take a picture of the set or of the crew, rather take a picture of the set so that it, what, what comes across is, hey, this is the Camden's house. This is the Camden's kitchen. This is the Camden's living room. This is Ruthie's room. This is, you know, they want that integrity maintained. So, you know, if you take a picture of the fourth wall, then everybody knows this is fake. It's not real. Well, that describes King Saul perfectly. He's like, Samuel, come with me. So everybody thinks that this is real. And then I'm not a big, fat phony. And so this is, this is all what's going on. Saul is all about image. Now, here's the shocking thing. The shocking thing is that Samuel comes to Saul and says to him, you're a fake, you're a phony, you're a fraud, and God's rejected you. And it doesn't drive Saul to his knees to say, oh my gosh, God, do not reject me. Don't, you know, cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Saul doesn't say any of those things. David will say those things. The man that God's going to replace Saul with, when he has a time where he falls in his sin, you will see him repent and come to that place where the only thing that matters to him is, God, I want to be in your presence. I don't want to be separated from you. But shockingly, what happens here when Samuel comes to him and tells him God's rejected you from being king, the only thing that Saul cares about is maintaining this image to everybody else. He could care less about the fact that that God has seen right through him and knows him to be a fake and a phony. He just wants to keep conning everybody else. And this isn't in my notes, but I would just ask you the question this morning, are you a fake and a phony? Are, are, Are your efforts... Hey, because listen, God can see. He knows. You're not getting nothing by Him. His eyes are a flaming, a burning fire. And, and, and are the energies in your life going towards trying to prop up an image? Keep everybody from looking behind the curtain. You know, Wizard of Oz kind of stuff. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Just look at the set that I've constructed. Take a walk with that. So it shocks me, he's concerned only about what the people think. Now, here's the key. The key to him perpetuating what the people think is bringing Samuel with him. He's got he's to he's operate off of Samuel's reputation because he's got no reputation of his own. Now, now here's the deal. I want to talk about reputation for half a second. There's three ways that you can get and perpetuate a good reputation, okay? You can build it, you can buy it, or you can borrow it. That's the three ways for you to have a good reputation, you can build it, you can buy it, or you can borrow it. Um, obviously, building your reputation is what you want to do. But the problem is building a good reputation takes a long time. It takes com- commitment. It takes steadfastness. It takes, you know, over an extended period of time, continuing to be somebody who demonstrates character. In season, out of season, just Continually. And what happens is people either, you know, it's been said it takes a lifetime to build a character and a moment to lose it. And so you get people that fall in that category, they've completely lost their character. This is Saul, he's completely, not that he really had a good character to begin with, but he's completely lost it. Or you you get people that are just like, I don't want to take the time and so I want to take the shortcut. Well, the shortcut is you buy it or you borrow it. I'll give you an example. Authors and publishers know all about buying a good reputation. What will happen is an author will write a book, and uh, the publisher will buy a bunch of those books. Well, by buying a bunch of those books, what does that book do? It goes on to the bestseller list, right? Nobody's bought the book, it hasn't earned its own reputation. They bought a reputation for it. And so now you go and, and they ever oh, this is the you know, New York Times bestseller list got on the New York Times bestseller list because the publisher bought a million dollars worth of books. Nobody bought the book. See, they bought a reputation. And, and, and so, you know, we, they, celebrity endorsement's the same way. You know, what, you, you get, you know, you got some product, you want to offer it for sale. So let's say it's a safety product and you get Captain Sully Solenberg, who landed the plane in the Potomac. You're like, hey, would you, would you, you know, be the celebrity endorser of my product? And everybody goes, oh, wow. Captain Sully endorses it. It's got to be good, right? No, they bought a reputation. Now, the majority of people, if they want to take the shortcut, they borrow a reputation. And this has a lot of practical application for us. See, what happens is when a person borrows a reputation, I'll give you an example, um, Billy Graham. The man's earned a great reputation. Spent a lifetime earning a good reputation. Well, what happened, he was known as the as the... the President's pastor, because he would be, you know, the pastor for a lot of different presidents. Well, um, Richard Nixon got into some trouble. He had a credibility problem called Watergate. So what did he do? Well, he borrowed Billy Graham's reputation. He, he cozied up real close to Billy Graham during this time. Why? Was he so interested in coming to Jesus and being Mr. Integrity? Well, that's between him and the Lord to figure out. But I would suggest, no, he's interested in, in, in votes, He's kissing babies, man, and that was what it was all about. He wanted to borrow reputation. And this happens in your life today. People want to borrow your reputation. Um, You know, you see a pot stirrer at work, somebody who's, they they got a, a reputation as being somebody who's always a malcontent, who's always complaining about something, and now they're chicken little. Nobody listens to them anymore. So what do they do? Well, notice what they'll do is they'll get a posse together to complain about something, and then now when they want to complain about it, they say, hey, all of us feel this way. What are they doing? They're borrowing your good reputation because they've trashed their own. Or another way that people borrow reputation, and I see dads do this all the time, and men or women can do this, but dads do this a lot to where, you know, they're they're not really the spiritual leaders of their home. Who is? Their wife. And so what happens is that, you know, the... The family has got maybe some spiritual traction. The kids are maybe walking in a godly direction, largely due to the godly behavior of the wife. And not a lot of thanks or credit to the dad, but what will the dad do? The dad will borrow the wife's reputation. All the while, she's begging him, please, could, could we pray together? Please, could, could we go to church together? Please, could, could you talk to the kids Can disciple the kids? And he's largely missing in action, but he will most gladly borrow her reputation. People are like, oh, wow, your, your, your kids are so godly. Thanks. Thanks so much. That's so awesome. Borrowed a reputation. This is exactly what Saul does here. Saul wants to, to, to borrow reputation. One other way people borrow reputation, just on the subject. You know, what happens is uh, sometimes, maybe you've got a family member or friend, they come to you, they're like, they want you to co-sign a loan for them. What are they doing? They are literally borrowing on your reputation because they've trashed their own. The Bible warns against this, by the way. Proverbs 11.15 says, There's danger in putting up security for a stranger's debt. It's safer not to guarantee any, another person's debt. If you read uh, Proverbs chapter 6, I'll paraphrase several verses, but it basically says, If you've let anyone borrow against your reputation, do whatever it takes to undo it and to get yourself out of that situation. And so what happens here, Saul comes to Samuel. And he's like, hey, let me borrow your reputation, man. You know, you come with me and, and, and all and, and honor me before the people. And uh, Samuel says, I'm not going with you. He says, God's rejected you. He's torn the kingdom from you. And he's given it to somebody who's better than you. And so now we go transitioning to somebody who's not in Chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel... How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now, if you remember back in chapter 9, what does the name of Saul mean? The name of Saul translated means asked of God. And he's the guy that the people asked for. Give us a king like all the other nations have a king. They asked for him. And, and yet now what God is saying is, look, he's the one that you asked for, but I'm going to now provide myself a king. He's the king I provided for you based on what you asked for, but now I'm going to provide myself a king uh, is, is what he says. And unlike Saul who uh, the people selected because of his image, what we're going to see here in in chapter 16, what I want to focus on is the basis for God's choice. Because all of this that we've just been talking about, it's the basis of human choice. It's the basis of, hey, vote for Saul, and image, and exterior, and all of that stuff, all the stuff we see on the outside. God says, man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. We're going to read that. And so what I want to look at now is the basis of God's choice. Continuing verse 2. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, just real quickly there, let me just say something uh, deviating from my notes here and kind of deviating from the lesson. You read this and the temptation is to say and to think in your heart, well, God's telling him to lie. Because honestly, it kind of comes across that way, doesn't it? He's like, oh, well, wait a minute. You want me to go and, 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 you know, go to anoint someone from the house of Jesse? But he says, you know, if, if I go and Saul hears that I'm going, he's going to kill me. And the father says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Here's the point that I just want to make real quickly. It's none of Saul's business what God has chosen to do. Saul has rejected the Lord, and the Lord now has rejected him. Saul has lost any sort of right to know what God is doing in his sovereign plans. Why am I emphasizing that? Because for, for many of you, you live with family that has completely disregarded and disrespected any sort of boundaries that you have in your life. And there are people in your life right now that think they are entitled to know everything about you. And and what we need to take away from this is to understand sometimes that you know when when somebody's pressing me for information, I don't have to tell them everything. I can simply say, "Look, here's what you need to know." And and the fact is that he is taking a heifer. He is going to make a sacrifice. It's not a lie. It's absolutely not a lie. This is what he's going to do. But the other business that he's going to, to do, Saul has no right to know, no business no. It's none of his business. And some of you need to be freed up to know there's people in your lives that are demanding stuff from you, that are crossing all kinds of personal boundaries in your life, to where you, you can just draw the line and go, you know what? You have no right to that information. None whatsoever. And I have no obligation to give it to you. For some of you, that's the price of admission right there. You're freed up. Go. Be in peace. Follow the Lord. So, verse 3, he says, Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. And so Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Now, why did they ask that? Well, because he just hacked up Agag in the other town. They're like, you got a sword behind your back there, dude? You coming to hack anybody else up kind of deal? Do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, He says, sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And so it was, verse 6, when they came that he looked at Eliab, and he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Samuel's making the same mistake that he made before. He saw, saw, you know, Saul, and he went, Wow, head and shoulders above the rest, good-looking guy. He was right with everybody else. He's, you know, thinking, this guy's the king, the one from central casting, the one who fits the part. And he's doing it again right here, falling right into the same trap, looking at the outward appearance. That's the whole problem with Saul and the whole get of chapter 15. It's not, you know, you're not running for re-election. It's not about the outward appearance. But, verse 7, and this is where the Lord says the same thing. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. This should be underlined in your Bible. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart that's the key to our whole lesson today. And so Jesse called Abinadab, this is his number two son, and made him pass before the Lord. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema his number three son, pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are, the, are all the young men here? In other words, you got any other sons? This is full-on Cinderella kind of stuff right here. I got the slipper. It doesn't fit any of the sisters. Are there any other sisters around here? You know, you got anyone left? And then he said, this is Jesse speaking, his father, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the, the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And so he sent, and he brought him in, and now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. This is David. He is the runt of the the litter. And, uh, And verse 13 said, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel arose, and he went to Ramah. Now again, what we see here in these verses, we see the basis of God's choice. What we saw in in chapter 15 was the logical conclusion of the basis of man's choice. It was an outward appearance that was as fake and phony as the set on any movie set. And so what we see here is the basis for God's choice, whereas the basis for man's choice is the exterior image, right? The maintaining, the don't look at the fourth wall kind of thing, nothing to see here. The basis of God's choice, well, there's, a couple, there's, there's several things to see in that. The number one thing, if you're taking notes, God's choice of a man is contrary to human reason. God's choice of a man is contrary to human reason. Let me say this, nobody, and I guarantee nobody in Bethlehem thought that day that David was going to be the anointed as the king of Israel. Nobody would have picked him. He wouldn't have been even a hundred to one odds, you know, long shot. He would have not been on the list. People would have been like, what? Him? Nobody would have picked him. Why? Well, first of all, David was despised by his brothers. You don't see it in this chapter, but you'll see it in the next chapter. When he goes and he faces Goliath, you're going to see just how much his brothers despise him. And they're going to be ridiculing him and deriding him and so on. So he was despised by his brothers. Another reason that nobody would have picked him is because he was disregarded by his father. We know that for a couple of reasons. One, his dad calls him the youngest. He says, don't you have any other sons? He doesn't even think enough of his son to bring him out and have him be considered. And then he refers to him as the youngest. And according to Alan Redpath, that means not just that he was the youngest chronologically, but it means that he was the least in his father's estimation. His dad just didn't think that much about him. And clearly, we know his dad didn't think that much about him because he had, he had him out tending sheep. That was like the lowest thing you could do in this, in this society. Shepherds were despised. They were considered to be thieves and robbers and, you know, malcontents and all of this other stuff. And this is what his dad thinks of him. He throws him out with the sheep. Like, don't you have any other sons? Well, yeah, just my youngest. One stinking up the field with the sheep out there. You don't want to see him. Some of you, that's the way your dad was to you. Maybe that's the way your mom was to you. You know, you're never going to amount to anything. Never going to be anything. And so it seemed, David seemed destined to a low station in life. And yet God chose him. Why did God choose him? Well, Paul said this to the Corinthians. He said, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put shame the wise God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that, and here it is, no flesh should glory in His presence. God doesn't want any flesh to glory in His presence. He wants to get the glory. You think about Gideon fighting the Midianites. God shows up. He's like, hey, mighty man of valor. Gideon's in a wine press, you know, trying to, to, to process the wheat. And, and God shows up and mighty man of valor. Gideon's like, who are you talking? You're not talking to me. You know, when you, when you would thresh the wheat, you would go up, you know, up on a hillside and you'd throw it up in the air so that the wind could blow the chaff away and the wheat kernels could come down. And, and so Gideon is so afraid of the Midianites, he's in a wine press in a ditch trying to do the same thing to separate the wheat from the chaff because he's, he, because he's afraid, he's hiding. And God shows up, he's like, mighty man of valor. He's like, you got the wrong address. God's like, no, I don't. No, I know some of you might be thinking that today because, you know, that's the way you were raised that way and your parents just drilled it into your head that you're nothing and you're never going to be anything. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If that's you and that lie is just drumming in your head, you take that lie captive to the obedience of Christ. God loves you. You cannot believe the things that God wants to do through your life, can do through your life. We know in the story of Gideon, God shows up and then he's like, I want to I wanna defeat the Midianites. I want to use you to do it. So Gideon raises up this large army, of 30,000 plus men. And uh, God's like, eh, too many people. Why? Because no flesh can glory in his presence. He wants the glory so God has them thin out the guys, and then he comes out, oh, you still got too many people, thin them out. So you got them doing these different things to thin the people out, and finally, he goes through his last kind of thing. He says, have them all go down to drink, and the ones that take the water and cup it in their hands and drink, those are the ones that, that, uh, that you select, but the ones that lean over and lap like a dog, you reject those, Right? And a lot of even biblical commentators will completely miss it and they'll say, you know what? God wanted the people that were going to cup it in their hands because they were being diligent and attentive and they're, they're ready to, to react any sort of way. And so that's why he chose them because they would be, you know, those that were just acutely and diligently watching and, 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 and all. And that completely misses the point. The point had nothing to do with that. The point had to do with God wanted to take him from 30,000 plus guys to 300 people so that when the victory came, no man could say, oh, I did this. I had something to do with it. God chose me because I'm super diligent and and hypervigilant and ready for action. No, why? Because that would give glory to the flesh and God doesn't want that. The reason why God had them thin everybody out is because God wants the glory and the preeminence, and so he thins them out to do this great work. And I want you to take note in our text, how many sons does Jesse have that he brings before Samuel to consider? Seven sons. It's the biblical number of completion. And I I think it shows us that the flesh is completely and totally and utterly worthless. Absolutely, completely, there's no good from it. He chooses number eight. He chooses the guy that everybody would not even consider because God is in the business of pulling a rabbit out of a hat and making incredible things out of something that everybody else would say, no, I can't do it. Why? Because God wants the glory. Alan Redpath said this. This is the greatest quote I've read in months. He said, the perfection of the flesh is always rejected in heaven. That is a hard lesson for us to learn, but it is absolutely imperative that we understand it if we would be among God's beloved. If you refuse that lesson, if you reject that principle, you may still be quite a leader in Christian work, but not a God-directed chosen one among his people. For that which is done in the flesh is of no profit to God. He insists upon the sentence of death, upon everything that you and I are in ourselves. There is only one place for all that is self. On the cross of Calvary. So God's choice of a man is contrary to human reason. Secondly, God's choice of a a man is conditioned upon a heart response. Absolutely conditioned upon a heart response. I want you to notice the difference between Saul's calling and David's calling. See, if you'll recall in chapter 10, when God called Saul, Saul hid from God. And he had to be fetched, literally seized. People had to go and drag him to respond to God's call. But now here, David, when he's called, he responds willingly. And and, and here's what he responded to, and I want you to get this, so important. He responded not just to being anointed as the future king of Israel, but here's what he responded He responded to something much bigger. He responded to being part of this great work that God would do to bring the Messiah to atone for the sins of all mankind. I want you to hear among the last words recorded in the Bible from the lips of Jesus, Revelation 22. Jesus said, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. In other words, David's character was rooted in Jesus Christ. And the moment that he responded to God's calling in his life, it set the course for the Messiah to be born through his his offspring. Here's what I want you to think about. Think about this. God wants to do incredible works through us. He wants to do an incredible work through you. Several of you, many of you raised your hands last week to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the Bible promises that that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Old things pass away, behold, all things become new. And God will do, like, it will blow your mind what he will do and what he wants to do in your life. We had one of our our children's ministry workers, a gal that oversees our our, our nursery, she was exhorting some of the, the folks on Facebook last night. And basically, if I can paraphrase her words, she basically said, look, don't have the attitude when you come to serve the kids tomorrow that it's just another Sunday. Because this might be the Sunday that God uses you to lead some child to Christ. This might be the Sunday that, that someone steps from death into eternal life because you showed up and served and allowed God to move in and move, work through you. And God's chosen you and it's conditioned, this is my words, upon your heart's response. This gal giving the exhortation and, and basically, again, not her words but mine, she's basically saying you have no idea if the person that you lead to Christ could be the next Billy Graham could be the next great glory, It could be someone that just absolutely brings hundreds of thousands to Christ, changes the world for all eternity. You have no idea what God wants to do in you and through you. But God does, and it's all conditioned upon your heart response. That's the basis of God's choice, not, hey, vote for Saul. But, I don't know, I was tending sheep, and I know I love the Lord, and he wants to make me the king. I have no idea how I can do that. You can't, but God's chosen you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Third and final point, the basis of God's choice. God's choice of a man is characterized by heavenly recognition. His choice of a man is characterized by heavenly recognition. Look again, verse 13. It says, then Samuel took the horn of oil. This is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And here we go. Here's the heavenly recognition. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel arose and he went to Ramah. Listen, there is this heavenly recognition upon David and his life. And we see this theme throughout scriptures. The disciples, they wait in the upper room. They're praying. They're waiting upon the Lord. And what happens is the Lord pours his Holy Spirit out upon them. They have this heavenly recognition. And they're now empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's manifested in the fact that they're speaking languages that they never learned. So that they can convey to the thousands who are gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost the goodness and the greatness of God. And then we see... Thousands getting saved and coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the heavenly recognition upon their lives. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We see the same thing with Jesus. He goes to be baptized. And he's baptized in the Jordan. And we see that a dove descends upon him. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And we hear the voice of the Father. It says, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here's the point. It's My last point short and sweet, don't miss it. If you call yourself a Christian today, your life should be characterized by heavenly recognition. And that recognition is the power of the Holy Spirit. That there is power in your walk. That there's power in your words. That there's power in your witness. And I would ask you, is that what people are seeing in your life? Or is what people see in your life the fourth wall And they see this is just a set. This is just somebody politicking who's put on this image. And it's not who they are at all. Three questions to consider as we close. What's, number one, your image and reputation? Take a walk with that. What is your image? What's your reputation? And and, and maybe sort of a a call question to that would be, are you building it? Are you buying it? Are you borrowing it? Second question is Is the image that you project the same person that God knows you to be? That's too many words you can just say. Am I a fake or am I, am I a fake and a phony or am I the real deal? And the third question is um, Is there a heavenly recognition in your witness? In other words, are you characterized by operating in the flesh or operating in the strength of the Spirit?